ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. One of the most surprising and fascinating experiences I've ever had was a visit to Lady Musgrave Island off the east coast of Australia, located at the very southern end of the Great Barrier Reef. It's tiny, uninhabited by humans and made of coral. It literally groans with wildlife. Or should that be chirps? Because 22 species of seabird use the island for breeding. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Lady Musgrave is a healthy environment, but many other islands in the world have seen seabird numbers plummet over the centuries, including one of Nick Holmes' favourite spots, Palmyra Atoll in the middle of the Pacific, halfway between Hawaii and American Samoa. Nick is a scientist with the Nature Conservancy and he leads their island resilience strategy. Out there, there used to be rats, and we got rid of rats some time ago, about two decades ago, but the seabirds were not coming back. We knew that seabirds were originally a part of Palmyra's ecosystem, and they weren't coming back. And after a bit of thought, we were thinking, this is probably because the generational memory of Palmyra as a breeding location has probably been lost. And so what we needed to do was to stimulate that. We needed to remind these birds that were in the area that, hey, this was a place that's safe to breed again. And so what we did in order to bring these birds back was we played seabird discotheques that essentially broadcast the breeding calls of these seabirds. And it worked like a charm. We've had uh, a couple of these birds not only return, but also breed. And so that's fantastic. After what's probably been more than 80 years of these birds being absent, we've now got them returning to the island. The official name for the process is acoustic restoration. And it's a relatively new, but apparently promising means of ecological reinvigoration. The top 40 that we're playing is essentially mating calls. It's it's pillow talk of seabirds to say, hey, here I am, come and check me out. Restoration means to restore something back to some sort of target. Maybe it was what it once looked like before, or maybe we're creating a new habitat, something to protect species that might be at risk for climate change elsewhere. An acoustic means noise. It means that sense of being able to hear. And, of course, that's not unique to humans. That's really common to a lot of animals as well. And, in fact, it's a really important part for the behavioural repertoire of a number of animals. And so we can actually manipulate or utilise acoustic signals to achieve restoration outcomes. And it's a a really neat and fantastic way to, to go about doing this. And you've done this with different species of of seabirds in different locations? Yeah, in fact, uh, so some of the ones that I've been involved in have happened in in Chile uh, and out in Puerto Rico as well with uh, shearwaters and diving petrels. 
So it's pretty remarkable what you can do taking advantage of this acoustic repertoire that they have. And what's the advantage of luring them in this kind of way with sound as opposed to simply finding a a pair of birds and bringing them physically to an island? It's much cheaper and it's much more efficient and you're kind of doing it on the bird's terms, if you like. So anytime that you've got to go and handle a bird, it costs a lot of time and energy and resources and you're also putting those birds at risk. But getting some big speakers and a car stereo and playing this top 40, it's actually relatively cheap and you can do it in lots and lots of places. And then it's really kind of up to the bird to respond. You're doing everything that you can to give the bird the chance and if the bird returns then great you've you've achieved your outcome however it may not always work and for some species and some populations you may be looking at a more involved process that's called conservation translocation to re-establish a seabird population and how do we know or how can you be sure that a species of bird should actually be on that island they might have lived there or they might have used that island in previous times but you know perhaps it may not suit them in the current climate how do you make determinations about that Oh, well, that's where, as a conservation biologist, you you really should only be restoring species back to habitats that you know you can protect. And so, for example, Palmyra is uh, it's a U.S. minor outlying island, and uh, it's designated as a national wildlife refuge. And we know that it's a good place for seabirds because it doesn't have invasive mammalian threats. There's no more rats there anymore. We know that it's going to be protected into the future because of this designation as a protected area. Mm-hmm. And surrounding the atoll, there's actually a marine protected area as well. So we know there's good forage for the seabirds too. So absolutely, you need to only do these kinds of activities where you're confident that they're going to be maintained safely and in perpetuity. The whole discipline of acoustic ecology and ecoacoustics, it's really an emerging field. It's, It's gained so much traction over the last, say, 10 years that we're now at that point where we as researchers are asking different questions and we can see that not only by targeting specific species, we should be looking at this broader soundscape because as our system is changing so rapidly with multiple disturbances and we see them you know, nearly every week, we also have the impacts of climate change, we have this degradation over time and people, just normal everyday people, not just scientists, are now hearing change in the environment, not just seeing it, but hearing it. Dr Elizabeth Snyderzik from Charles Sturt University. What we do when we restore an environment, we try to recreate or accelerate the recovery of that ecosystem after a disturbance. And at the moment, we use multiple tools which are very effective, including revegetation, planting trees, shrubs, or seeding. We also use engineered structures, but we seem to have missed out on one critical link, and that's where we go to with the acoustic restoration. So with acoustic restoration, we look at playing what we call a soundscape, which equates to all the sounds at a particular site. And has acoustic restoration of an entire habitat, has that been successfully achieved so far or are we still really talking in theoretical terms? For the entire soundscape, we're definitely talking in theoretical terms and we actually have a couple of pilot projects which we're seriously investigating at the moment. But we know that species do respond to sound and I use it in some of my work to elicit a response from a very secretive species that we may not see but we actually know 
that they are there from their call. So we might play the call. The bird species may respond in defending their territory or potentially seeing a mate. We also play sounds for species to avoid. A very nice example would be for bats when we have wind turbines. There's actually a very high ultrasonic frequency that we can play that will deter bats from coming close to that actual wind turbine. So this is not just about using the sounds that animals make themselves. It's also about the sounds that will occur in nature, non-biological sounds. That's right. So when we look at a landscape or we look at any location, you know, we go, okay, well, there there may be a whole lot of vegetation, a whole lot of animals that are natural. However, we do have the impacts of man-made structures. And a soundscape is exactly the same. So we have natural sounds, we have anthropogenic sounds, which are generated by humans, and we also have the sounds of weather, rain, wind, whatever that may be. So this entire soundscape is the totality of sound, just as a photograph gives us a very visual representation of a site. And how difficult is it to build an effective soundscape when you're talking about quite a complex ecosystem? The complexity of the ecosystem can't just be measured or benchmarked in, I suppose, one sense. So when we visually look at something, we may be missing a whole lot of secretive animals that that may be in that habitat. We may not be able to capture what the weather is doing and we may not be able to capture what the actual sounds from anthropogenic noise may be doing. So by using multiple layers of monitoring techniques, we can get to a more robust picture of what this ecosystem is doing or what this site is doing. And this approach is about luring animals back to a site, perhaps an ecosystem that they've left in the past or been driven out of in the past. How do you ensure that when you lure them back, they will stay? And does it matter if they stay? It doesn't really matter if they stay because in the early kind of temporal scale of a disturbance, even inviting a species back by playing a sound, and it may not be that species sound, it may be uh, another species sound that it actually responds to, By even going back, say, for example, a a wombat may wander in, have a bit of a scratch, it'll defecate. Same with a bird. A bird may fly in, it may defecate on its feathers or on the, the wombat's fur. It may drop bacteria, fungi, seeds. And all of that will actually start the very bottom up process of recolonization. The very base of the food web will start to kick off. So does sound speed up the restoration process? Most definitely. There are examples. There was a very nice one just recently looking at oyster larvae in an artificial reef system. They played a sea soundscape out from that artificial reef. They had a control site and the actual results were outstanding because the amount of oyster larvae that came back to the site that was playing the soundscape was well beyond the expectation of how effective playing sound in an environment would be. And remembering too that not all species just use visual cues. We don't use just visual cues as well. In the ocean, sound travels a lot further. So those species that hear will be prompted. That cue will enable them to go back to a site and it's exactly the same in a terrestrial system. If you're intent on using acoustic restoration, that approach, 
what are the priorities? How do, how do you start setting up? Well, first of all, for practitioners working in the ecological space, we need to be aware that sound is such a potent tool. So firstly, I would recommend that everyone out there should take long duration, high quality recordings of their site. This is being done by the Australian Acoustic Observatory right now as we speak. They have 100 sites all over Australia continuously recording acoustic data. That's being uploaded. Any kind of researcher can actually access that. It is free. It is open access. So they can look at specific species or they can look at soundscapes. A lot of the time we're so focused on one group of taxa or a specific species that we're not actually getting this larger picture. We could be looking at co-occurrence. We could be, for example, looking at, gee, when that bird is there, I never even thought that that frog species was there. Or for this assemblage of birds to be present, we actually have this entire chorusing of particular insects. So it actually gives us a broader view and it gives us a temporal scale as well, because we can't be in the field 24-7 over an entire year, over 10 years, over 20 years, over 30 years. But if we have got this, basically it's a library of sounds, we can always go back in time. And the exciting thing is, you know, with AI, we can actually start, there'll be more and more calls to use in deep neural networks, so they can actually pull out species lists a lot more effectively. Elizabeth Snyderzik at Charles Sturt University. Now, across the Pacific at the Nature Conservancy, Nick Holmes has been working on a similar project, a global restoration database, but one specifically for seabirds. Oh, this is fantastic. And it was a, it's a really fun project. And so in the conservation science space, there's a real knowledge gap and a real need for pooling together the outcomes of different conservation interventions. And so that's something that we did with seabird restoration. We were asking ourselves, how many times have different people done this? What species did they work with? Where did they do it? And what was the outcome? And so I was really fortunate to work with a terrific bunch of conservationists and scientists from Pacific Rim Conservation, from Northern Illinois University, the National Audubon Society here in the U.S., and in New Zealand, the Department of Conservation and the Museum of New Zealand called Tipapa. And we did exactly that. We reached out to more than 1,400 different people around the world and we asked them, have you been doing this and what's been the outcome? And we found that there's about 850 efforts of seabird restoration across 36 different countries targeting nearly one-third of all seabird species. And what was really, really amazing is that nine and a half times out of 10, people had no problem doing this kind of seabird restoration. And about 80% of the time, the seabirds responded. And so that gave us really great sense of the scale of this kind of endeavour, that it has been done in a number of different places. But it also told us that this is a call to action for more of this type of restoration to go ahead because it can be really, really successful. So wherever there's seabirds that are at risk of extinction or we can restore the ecological role of seabirds to strengthen coastal and island resilience, we absolutely should do that because this is a cheap and feasible activity. Nick Holmes, and before him, Elizabeth Snyderzik. To something completely different now, 
And when Princeton University computer scientist Arvind Narayanan recently scheduled an open workshop to discuss a problem he'd identified with the way artificial intelligence is used in research, he realistically expected only a couple of dozen attendees. He ended up with over 1,500 from a wide variety of fields. What the gathering agreed on was that the use of AI in scientific research needs greater scrutiny, because in far too many cases, according to Professor Narayanan, machine learning isn't making for better research, it's actually distorting outcomes. Science for, I don't know, maybe 100 years has been a statistical field. And over the last decade or so, machine learning is becoming a bigger and bigger part of it. So what's the difference? In statistics, the culture is you kind of carefully hand curate models. You think about which variables matter to what it is you're trying to estimate. And you use well-understood mathematical equations for trying to estimate the quantities that you care about. In machine learning, you bring in a little bit more of the culture that we're now familiar with from the tech industry. You get whatever data you can get your hands on that might or might not intuitively seem related to the outcome you're trying to predict. And then you try to use whatever powerful machine learning method or classifier you can get your hands on. And I can give you an example. Traditionally, if we wanted to understand the causes of civil war, we would build what are called logistic regression statistical models. Uh, You have a selection of variables that you think might have something to do with civil war. What is the GDP of the country? I don't know. What what was the rhetoric of the politicians like, et cetera? And then you try to understand the phenomenon. In the machine learning approach, just grab whatever administrative data you have available, and you're not limited in terms of what kinds of algorithms you use, and you try to predict civil war as accurately as possible. And then once you've built the predictive model, you try to extract some insights out of it. Now, your research has indicated that there is what you call a reproducibility crisis occurring in science as a result of the growth of the use of of machine learning. Could I get you to explain what you mean by that and what's the problem? There has been a reproducibility crisis in statistical science for a long time. That's why I was mentioning this background of statistical science. And the issue there is that when you don't have deterministic phenomena, you need to be really sure that what you're seeing actually provides evidence for what you think is going on because it's not going to be, it's never going to be perfectly correlated. So that was the situation we started with. This is is well known in certain fields like social psychology and nutrition research, certain other areas of health research. There have been many, many studies, including, you know, things that were on the front page of the New York Times, perhaps, end up not being reproducible when people try it on a new population of subjects and they get a new data set and they try to analyze the data set. Now, what's going on with machine learning is that all of those issues relating to the data are still very much true. You still need good quality data and a good quantity of data to be able to do good predictions using machine learning and for your claims to actually hold up. But in addition, we have additional problems, which is that unlike traditional statistical methods, Machine learning, you know, is a powerful tool, but it's kind of like a buzzsaw. You really need to know what you're doing with it. And so the code that you're going to write to come up with a scientific finding might be, I don't know, thousands of lines long. And so if there is any bug anywhere in those thousands of lines of code, either because you were careless or you have misunderstood some aspect of machine learning, what's going to happen is you're going to end up with a claim 
that's actually not scientifically accurate. And where it gets worse is that, of course, we have peer review, and uh, it's important to have peer review, but it's not perfect. Part of peer review is not reviewing the code. That almost never happens. And so we don't actually have a good mechanism to catch this when there are incorrect claims that are published in the scientific literature. So this seems to have been happening for much of the last decade. In individual fields, people have noticed, hey, this, is, this, is, this seems to be going on. We seem to have a systematic problem. What we did, my collaborator, Sayash Kapoor and I, we brought in evidence from something like a dozen different fields that seems to be going on everywhere. And we had some of our own findings as well in political science about uh, research findings that don't seem to hold up when we look at the actual source code. And we have some ideas about what is the underlying reason why all this is happening and what we can perhaps do about it. So central to the problem here is that a lot of researchers don't have the skills, uh, don't have the mastery of software engineering. But in a sense, we don't want them to have that, do we? We want them to concentrate on their areas of academic research interest. Ideally, we want research teams that both have domain expertise and whatever they're researching, as well as expertise in machine learning. They don't necessarily have to be software experts, but they need to understand the principles behind machine learning that allow you to build a model that accurately reflects the reality of the world that you want to model. And that it's that translation process between the real world and this model you're building in the lab where a lot of gaps seem to occur. So collaboration is really important here. If, if we're to try and remedy this problem, building teams, as you say, that have a variety of skills, including skills in using machine learning. Collaboration is one way to go. I think that's certainly important. But at the same time, another useful intervention would be for scientists who are going to use machine learning in their work to spend a lot more time familiarizing themselves, not just with the basics, but what the pitfalls are and how to avoid those pitfalls. Arvind Narayanan, a computer scientist at Princeton University. Finally, to 3D printing. And before you say anything, yes, we all know it hasn't lived up to the hype of just a few years ago, but there is one area where it is still showing promise, at least according to Columbia University researcher Jonathan Blutinger. We see 3D printing as a way to create objects with high customization and small batch manufacturing methods. So it basically gives you total control over the assembly process for any material you want to use. This has been applied to plastics with metals, to creating customized parts that couldn't be made using injection molding or other techniques. And this can also be applied to food. I think it's perhaps a lesser applied domain, perhaps because of the initial you know bias associated with it. I mean, if we think about printing, we think about industrial processes, but it's literally just an assembly process. So you were just shaping ingredients much the same way a chef would in the kitchen. It's just software-driven process. So we kind of see this as a way to really push the envelope forward in terms of allowing us to create new types of foods, new flavors, new textures, and uh, recreate a lot of a lot of the foods you're familiar with, but perhaps in a healthier way. Is anyone actually using the 3D printing process for food at the moment? There are quite a lot of companies using this right now. It's being pursued you know, by a lot of big manufacturing companies in the food space. I think one of the interesting places this is being applied is in plant-based meats. There's been some recent buzz around this 3D printed fish that came out from stakeholder foods. 
And a lot of the work is also being done by plant-based meat companies, such as Redefine Meat, which is one of the companies I'm working with, which is basically replicating a marbled steak using plant ingredients. So, you know, they're instead of using, you know, protein and fat, they're using a bean derivative and coconut fat to kind of create the marbling and the texture. And then you can start to see how these kind of different textures and, and cuts of steak can be replicated to a user's preferences. And then besides that, also by restaurateurs, foodies, and molecular gastronomers. So there's a, an environmental aspect to this as well, in, in the sense of moving away from real meat. But there's also, as you mentioned, there's a nutritional side to this that you find interesting. Just explain a bit more about that. You know, if you think about a lot of the times we interact with food on a daily basis, whether we're cooking at our home, we're going out to the store, or we're going to a restaurant, we're ordering things off of a menu, but a lot of times we don't actually know what's in the food. And by that, I mean, you know, we know we're eating fish if we order, a, you know, salmon from a restaurant or something like that. But what are the micro, what are the macronutrients that we're actually intaking? You know, we're not, we don't have a clear quantifiable number for these sorts of things. But what if you had a machine that could track all of this for you? So a machine like a food printer or, or you know, some kind of digital chef is what I usually like to call this type of machine. It'll have all of the information as to the micro, the macronutrients, all of the ingredients that it can use. And then it can start to craft meals for you. It can be like a nutritionist and a personal chef all in one, which I think just opens the door to a lot healthier eating and a lot more transparent eating. You get to actually see what goes into the food and you can control it kind of much easier. How do you deal with the issues of texture and taste, given that for this particular process, I, I presume you have to reduce everything to a paste? Right now, the easiest form to use is a paste, you're correct. But there is a lot of work being done to, and this is some of the stuff we're working on as well, to you know deposit powders, deposit liquids. But a lot of the foods we eat start in some sort of paste or soft form. Where they get their texture from is from the cooking process. You think about a pizza, you know, your dough, your sauce, your cheese, it starts out in these kind of mush soft forms. So we can kind of, it's malleable, we can mold it. And then as soon as we bake it or we cook it, that's when we get the crust, that's where we get the hardness from. So while it might not sound like it's extensible to a lot of different foods, I think once you add in the cooking element, which is something we've also pursued in the form of, you know, looking at lasers to get targeted cooking, or you could perhaps have an onboard oven or, you know, other kind of broiler, you get the texture back in a big way. I don't think that's a big hindrance right now, but you just have to kind of see how it fits into the process. You mentioned lasers there for cooking. Just explain how that works. Sure. That was the core of my work during my PhD at Columbia University. I basically worked on characterizing lasers for cooking purposes looked at dough. We looked at different types of lasers like blue lasers, which are commonly used in, in manufacturing for Blu-ray discs, near-infrared and other wavelengths. And I basically wanted to see, you know, couldn't we actually cook food? In, and by cook, I mean, can we achieve food safe temperatures? Can we achieve comparable textures, comparable moisture? And we achieved this for dough, we achieved this for chicken and other ingredients. So that was the core of my work is, you know, looking at this, looking at this technology, testing out its, its feasibility, which we found to be a viable solution. And then how can we incorporate this into a food printer to create kind of a one-stop shop, kind of a digital cooking platform that has printing and cooking all in one. Is time an issue here? Because I know that a lot of the, you know, the smaller 3D printing machines that you can buy often take a lot of time to produce the, the products that they're designed to produce. Is, is that an issue for food? If we're comparing this to plastic printing, it's much faster. It's, I'd say, somewhere on the order of 10 times faster ballpark. So if you're creating a meal that's, you know, a couple inches wide by maybe an inch tall, 
it'll take you about 30 minutes to an hour. Whereas on a typical plastic printer or something like that, it's much higher resolution and it would take you a lot longer. So I, I think it's fairly comparable on a time scale, but this is, I'm not trying to boast this as a, as a faster way to make food or, or a more efficient way by any means right now. <laughs> it's very early stage for that, but it's an entirely new way to make food. So I wouldn't treat this as an incremental increase. It's more of a, a departure from what we're used to. And it allows us to think of new food combinations and new flavor profiles because a lot of the cooking appliances and methods we're used to using now in our kitchen, a lot of the foods we eat are optimized for them. So this is like an entirely new way to make food. So we have to rethink how we can combine ingredients. It's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. No, no pun intended. A barrier right now is, is contextualizing this for people and and creating a kind of ecosystems that can support this. It's It's almost as if we have you know, an iPod without the music files. So we need to, we need environments to support this iPod, support this robot and really give it in the hands of users so that they can start playing with it and see what they do with it. And from a personal perspective, what sparked your interest in this area? Yeah, I think what really drives me right now is the fact that it is very new and it, it, it perhaps does receive some controversy, but rightfully so. It's a very, it's a very kind of a new, a new take on, on combining food and people are really emotional about food. So I like to kind of push the envelope and see, um, see how many people I can convince on this. Jonathan Balutinger from Columbia University. And that's Future Tense for another week. Thanks as usual to co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.